Normally, we don't think of any kind of good coming out of a disobedient act. But in this sense, disobedience became a blessing. I guess one example of a disobedient act that would be a miracle is if you stood before a firing squad and the man said, fire, everyone refused to fire his gun. They would all be disobeying the order, and yet, of course, that would be a miracle. At the beginning of the life of Jesus, the three wise men disobeyed the command of Herod. By so doing, they kept trouble from the life of Joseph and Mary and the newborn child. Through disobedience, in a real sense, there was a miracle work at the beginning of Christ's life. Now, at the close of his life, once again, we find a blessing results from somebody not doing what they were told to be done. This time, it's a soldier instead of wise men that does the disobeying. I doubt if very few people look upon this as a miracle, but in a real sense, it is a miracle. The people who stood around the cross may have been puzzled, may have been disturbed, but Still, it was a miracle. And possibly only one person in the crowd looked upon this as being a wonder worked from the hand of God, and that would be the man John, John the Apostle, because he was the one that records this incident. How could the people be sure that Christ was dead? You know, this was just the beginning of the crucifixion period. He looked to be dead, but I would imagine many of those looking on would have said, well, he has just fainted. Maybe he's not dead. Now, the Scriptures record that Jesus truly was dead. But again, may we say, we have the question in the mind of the people, was he really dead? It seems that John had taken Mary, the mother of Jesus, away before this and had returned from his home, where he left Mary. And when he arrived, he found Jesus had already died. And so John stood around the cross as the hours passed from 3 o'clock on towards 4 or 5 o'clock. Now, when 3.30 came, Christ was on the cross. When 4 o'clock approached, let us suppose that a group of the Jewish council members came to Pilate and made a special request. Verse 31 of John 19. The Jews, therefore, because it was a preparation period, that is, preparation for the holiest of all times in the Jewish way of looking at the calendar, it was a Passover period, they said that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for this Sabbath day was a high and holy day. They asked Pilate, to have the legs of those on the cross broken, that they might die quickly and then be removed from the cross before the day, of course, the next day arrives. Now, this is something that Paul had not intended on doing. He would have allowed the body of Christ to remain there on the cross with the other thieves possibly seven days or several days beyond what normally he would have done just to be sure to satisfy the whims of the Hebrews who definitely wanted Jesus to be crucified. You see, execution by crucifixion is not a very fast way to die. Actually, it's a very painful and slow death. For no part of the 
body is really affected, no vital part is affected. And it was not uncommon for a person crucified to stay on the cross at least three days before he would die. Now, the Jews did not want this crucifixion to last three days. Within just a few hours, the Jewish Sabbath day would start. And they wanted those crosses empty of their victims when that day started. Because, you see, the Jews believed that any body exposed of executed criminals would pollute their Sabbath day. And, of course, as I said a while ago, this was not an ordinary Sabbath day. It was the day of unleavened bread, the day we're now approaching, even in our own celebration of Easter. It was a high day, a very holy day, and thus the Jews were quite persistent that Pilate act quickly and speed the death of those hanging on the cross and remove them and get them buried before their high and holy day started. Now, Pilate undoubtedly agreed. And he sent orders to some of the centurions, or to the centurion, to break the legs of all three men. Now, that was the order. Break the legs of all three. And it's at this point that we find our miracle beginning in the treatment of Jesus. John nineteen thirty-two, thirty-three. 32, Then came the soldiers and broke the legs of the first criminal, and then they broke the legs of the other criminal, which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was dead already, and they did not break his legs. Now, this act of breaking the legs would be about as brutal or harsh as the crucifixion itself. For they would take clubs of wood or clubs of iron, and with heavy, strong blows, they would shatter the bones within the legs, causing, of course, the body to drop all the weight and thereby speed up the death from shock. But the soldiers disobeyed orders. Pilate said, break the legs of all three. Undoubtedly, the centurion told the soldiers, break the legs of all three. Why didn't they go to Jesus first? Why go on his left and break the legs of one, go to his right and break the legs of the other, and pass him by. The Bible says they believed Jesus was already dead. But why not be sure? Why take a chance? Had not Pilate given command? And would they not be disobeying orders if they took a chance? Maybe Jesus had just fainted. How could they be sure? I believe there were many watching that were not quite convinced that Jesus was dead yet. Irregardless, they did not break his legs. Again, I say, a while ago, it took two or three days for a man to die on crucifixion. Christ had only been on the cross for six hours. Why assume in six hours the man had died when normally it takes 48 hours? And why would Jesus have died and the other two not be near death? You see, a man just didn't die in, two, in six hours on the cross. And the other two men on each side of Jesus proved this to be true. And yet they did not touch the legs of Christ. The Bible says... They believed Christ were dead, was dead. Why did they believe this? What made them so sure? What made them leave him alone? Well, I believe this is a miracle. It was a direct intervention and influence of God the Father upon the minds of these men with the clubs. God would not and God could not let the legs of Jesus Christ be broken because this was what the Bible said 
regarding the sacrifice that was going to be given to take the sins of man away. Concerning the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, and Christ was truly the Passover lamb that day for mankind rather than a sheep. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. And talking about the lamb that was to be slain, it says here, Thou shalt not carry forth the flesh out of the house, neither shall you break a bone of the Passover lamb. That 1,500-year-old command given to the people was being kept by God on the cross. God made clear that this was the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, and He would fulfill every obligation, and one would be, His legs would not be broken. Now, Jesus, without a doubt, is the Passover Lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, it says, For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. The law of God can override the law of man when God steps in to see it's done. For you see, the law of man was, break the bones of Jesus. And the law of God says, break not the bones of the Passover lamb. And God was able to manipulate the mind of man whereby God's command got ahead of Pilate's command. Now, I think Psalms 34.20 is a prophecy concerning the death of Christ. He keeps, that is, God keeps all his bones, and not one of them is broken. How accurate the Bible is. Jesus did not have his legs broken because the Father stepped in to prevent it happening. God was responsible for this miracle. Remember what John said in John 19.36, For these things were done, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. These things were done by God the Father. You see, no matter how wicked man becomes, God can still, when he desires to, step in and override that man's plans and bring about the very thing God has promised will have to come to pass. God is still in control, whether we like it or not. And if a miracle is required to bring about proof of that control, God is not past bringing about such a miracle. All the legions of Caesar, all the army of Rome, and the world at that time could not have broken a single bone on the body of Jesus. It just could not have happened. No one has power against God's decrees. No one, Satan, man, or anyone else, no one has power against God's scriptural decrees. And so God must have put in the mind of the soldiers to disobey Pilate, to disobey the centurion, and to sense that Jesus Christ was dead. But you see, there was one soldier present there that didn't seem to agree with the others, he wanted to make sure. Undoubtedly, he had no club to break legs. But he stepped forward with a spear in his hand. Now notice John 19:34. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced the side of Jesus and 
out of the pure side came blood and water. Now this soldier seemingly did not want to take a chance that Jesus had not died. But here again you have another disobedient act. But you also have from that disobeyed command another miracle. The soldiers were told to break the legs of Jesus. They didn't. They were not told to take a spear and thrust it into the heart or the side of any of the thieves on the cross or Jesus either one. They were not commanded to pierce the side just to break the bones. Here, this soldier disobeys that command. He takes the spear, which he was not told to do, and throws it into the side of Jesus Christ. Everything was going contrary to command. And as far as the record indicates, they did not, that is, this soldier did not pierce the heart of either of the other two men hanging on the cross. Why did he just do it to Jesus? Everything has gone haywire here in this order that Pilate and the centurion gave. Well, look at John 19:37. Why did this man throw a spear in the sight of Christ? John says, And again another scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they pierced. That prophecy is found in Zechariah 12.10. Again, God took control of the mind of a soldier who had a spear in his hand and caused that man to throw that spear into the heart of Christ. God has control. Miraculous control even over man when he does not even realize why he does. But now what really startled John was not so much disobedience on the part of all the soldiers involved, but what he saw when the side of Christ was pierced. Let's go back to John 19, 34 and 35. One of the soldiers with a spear pierced Christ's side. And forthwith came thereout blood and water. And he that saw it, that is John saying, Now I saw this, and I bear this record is true. My eyes did not trick me. I saw this happen. And he that knoweth that he saith true, that you might believe. In other words, God knows that what I'm telling you is the truth. Now why did John emphatically want us to know that he wasn't lying? He said, I saw blood and water come out of that pure side. I saw it. And God is my witness, it happened. Now, what John saw was very unusual. It was a miracle. It was extraordinary. It was supernatural. And John said, there's a message here in what I had seen or I have seen. It's my understanding that blood does not flow from a dead body. When Jesus' heart was pierced, the blood and the water were separated, and it flowed out, or you might say, like a fountain. It just spewed out. That does not happen when the heart no longer pumps and when a man is dead. The blood congeals. Neither if you do this to a man's heart do you have a perfect separation of blood and water. Here was the real miracle, the fourth miracle. John Wesley said this about this incident in the life of Christ. It was strange 
seeing he was dead, that blood should come out, more strange that water also should come out. And most strange of all that both should come out immediately at one time and yet distinctly. It was pure and true water as well as true and pure blood. The statement of John, the beholder and testifier of it, shows both the truth and the greatness of the miracle and the mystery. Now, what is the mystery or the teaching of the separated blood and water from the side of Christ? Genesis 2, 21-22. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. As God took from sleeping Adam's side that which was to form the bride for Adam, so Christ will, or God will, take from the side of Christ as he slept in death that from which he will use to make the bride of Christ. It is the blood and the water that are symbolic of what God will use from the body of Christ to make for him the remainder of his body, the church. We are the body of Christ. A new person, a new body was made or is being made and will continue to be made until God desires to stop the process whereby we become the bride of Christ. With the first Adam, God took a rib. With the second Adam, God takes the blood and the water. As a new life came from the side of the first Adam, a new life comes from the side of the second Adam. Now, the Bible says much about this. You see, out of the pierced side of Christ springs forth new life. From the pierced side of Adam sprang forth a new life, his wife Eve. The death of Christ is designed to provide that which is necessary to change a sinner into something that is without spot, nor blemish, nor wrinkle. Remember the song, Rock of Ages? Cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. You ever know what I'm Save from wrath and make me pure. You see, the blood and the water speak of a double cure, a double change. A double blessing, a double event. By the blood of Christ, I am forgiven, I am pardoned, my past is cleansed free of sin. I become a child of God, not by the blood, but I become a child of God by the water. I'm not talking about water baptism. I'm talking about the baptism of the Spirit, which the Bible talks about very clearly. It's nothing but the new birth. So it's important for us to understand that God, through the blood, takes away the past sin and removes our sins from our life. And by the Holy Spirit performing a birth within a person, which is really in a real sense symbolized by a baptism or a cleansing, the Holy Spirit transforms and makes of a person something new. We call it a new man. He is born again. There is a new man and there is the old past forgiven. The Spirit is spoken of or symbolized by the water. In Titus 3, 5, we have both sides, the blood and the water. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He has saved us 
Now, by His mercy, He has saved us. That's forgiveness. Saved us from wrath. Saved us from sin. Saved us from the lake of fire. Saved us from death. Saved us from the second death. That is done by the blood. But, let's go on now. He saved us according to His mercy, also by the washing, there's your water, by the washing of regeneration. The washing pictures the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit where He reconstructs, where He gives a new creation, a totally cleansing of the old life, the old man. There is a new person that results as a result of the washing of regeneration which is done by the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is spoken of. For by one Spirit are we all... Now notice, by one... This is 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. There you are. Christ gets a new body, a new person, a part of the bride. How? We were all baptized into one body and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. The same Holy Spirit lives in all of us. And the gift of the Holy Spirit was a part of the flow of the water. Christ's bride is a doubly cleansed person by water and by blood. With his sins, with our with his blood, our sins are removed, and with the water there is new birth made available. And from those two things God makes a person new and gives him unto his son to be his bride.